This is the Game Changers podcast where your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And predominant educational thought leader, Adriana Prado. Well, the Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of the 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't want or wait for permission. Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are going to be their stories. One of the challenges that we face in education today is ensuring that we have the very best possible adults working with children in our schools. So how do we source and educate teachers who are going to help our children thrive in the 21st century? We are very delighted to be talking with Professor Mark Hutchinson from Alpha Crucis College, my own college, today on The Game Changers. We're going to be talking about Uh, uh, sourcing teachers, we're going to be talking about educating teachers and a whole lot more. Let's go. Lovely to be again with you, Phil. Thanks, Adriana. uh, Thank you very much for your time today, Mark. We're really uh, privileged that uh, you're here present with us and and sharing your particular journey. And that's where I'd like to start. I want to start with you telling our listeners a little bit about your story and how did you get to where you are today? With great reluctance. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think it's probably the, the answer to that. I come from a family of, uh, which is now, I think, six generations of teachers. Uh, my uh, great, great aunt was the first paid teacher in New South Wales, I believe. Uh, at least the, so, so the family um, story tells us. And we've got generations of, of people teaching in bush schools and you know, sort of small country schools around the place. And so, and I grew up in a teacher's house where my father was a deputy principal of a school uh, when I was growing up and my mother was um, first a classroom teacher, then later on a, 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 a the principal of what was then the largest primary school in New South Wales. Uh, so I grew up with the absolute uh, determination not to be a teacher. And, uh, and then I was invited to go to the University of New South Wales uh, on a teacher's scholarship. And so I took the money <laughs> and uh, consequently the die was cast. And so I then, uh, through the 1980s, I, uh, I came out in a period when there were no jobs for teachers, and so I decided I could do a PhD, and so I did. And so I became a, an academic historian, uh, who then would often ran research centres and various other things for quite some time. And uh, in the, for the last 24 or five years, um, I've been trying to build a Christian university, uh, which would enable the balance of of uh, views across the educational sector which is very well represented across the three major sectors of the schools uh, to also be represented across the university sector mark for those of our listeners who are not necessarily from australia why is building a christian university a thing to do uh well i, I think australia has the highest um choice uh educational choice in the world um, i think we've been number five or something but if you look at per capita it's it's we're well up there uh we have very little choice in terms of our tertiary offerings however um all the major uh providers um are, are publicly funded except for one uh and uh all of them have issues with um 
catering to the ethos driven nature of uh, two thirds of the Australian schooling sector. Uh, so we think that there's a, a great need actually for um, people to find choice um, across the sector so that, you know, Catholics can go to Catholic universities if they want to. And, you know, people who, who are of various uh, persuasions can go to state funded universities. But for those, that very large part of the educational supply in Australia, which is uh, in Christian schools and in independent schools with church relationships, they should have a choice as well. So I think it's extremely important that we, uh, grow in depth and breadth um, uh, of all the categories um, of the Carnegie um, taxonomy of higher education institutions, of which there are 52, I believe. Um, uh, there are only, uh, Australian institutions only fill two of those. So we are a very narrow tertiary uh, set of providers. And this, I think, actually leads directly into the problems relating to teacher supply. There's no doubt that... Um education is a hot topic and it is something that uh, every time the election cycle comes around seems to become the, the biggest political football and and let's face it teachers seem to be the ones who have to brunt everything you know uh, when when uh, the media release figures on deficit type language around falling PISA rankings the first group of individuals that cop the whack are the teachers uh, yet they're not the first group when things are going well, funnily enough. And what I've been able to witness, I know, in the last probably week or so is teachers in solidarity during the coronavirus crisis, and I'm going to call it that, uh, getting together, not only online, but in person, collaborating and curating so much kind of uh, learning uh, artifacts and materials in support of the young people in their care. And they're doing that in a paradigm where they really don't know what's happening, as many Australians don't, because we're getting kind of drip-fed information about this particular crisis on a daily basis because it's shifting so quickly. So you're in a space where you get the privilege of developing teachers to take their place in our various school settings, uh, whether it's the public or the, or the private sector. Can you talk a little bit about then in in the preparation of these teachers, how do you go about ensuring that they are abreast of all the things that matter in 21st century competencies and learning? Um, I think it's important first for teachers who enter the, the trade uh, into the profession um, and that question about it, whether it's a professional, whether it's a craft is a, a very important question, which I think needs further discussion. Uh, but um, you know, when you enter the the craft in Australia, um, it's really important to be under to understand your context. Uh, most education in Australia is state funded, uh, and then all the top up funding for independent schools, in particular, comes from federal. Federal government only does four things: it it does defence, it does foreign affairs, it does health and education, and consequently when there are public debates, it's around one of those four things. <laughs> and well, therefore teachers inevitably find themselves in the front line, a front line for which they're not very well um, uh, equipped really through their education, I don't think. So there's context of teaching, which is um, extremely important. Um, there is uh, also a sense, I think, of um, uh, in higher education research um, that uh, people are quite aware of it, why people join the teaching profession. 
Um, there are three major reasons. You want to do something significant with your life. You want to work with colleagues uh, with whom you can uh, do something significant. Um, and then you want to work in a setting where you're, you're continuously growing. So if you ask teachers, you know, why did you become a teacher as opposed to an accountant or something like that? Yeah. It had to do with the personal side. It had to do with the formative side. It, and it had to do with a sense of meaning and vocation in life. Um, unfortunately, most of um, the systems which are implemented by large-scale public systems um, are uh, pretty mechanical in nature and they specialize in stripping the meaning out <laughs> and also the community because right. of the contractualization of work. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen um, a massive growth in independent schooling in Australia is that parents, in a sense, are voting with their feet because they can have more say, not, not necessarily because they, they, they share the values of the schools to which they're going, but they feel that somehow at least their schools have values and their values into which I can have some input because you know, I, I have, uh, I, I make a, a financial contribute contribution to the school. Yes. So even though I think there's massive agreement as to the sort of public nature of, of, of the good of the public system and everybody supports it. Of course they do through their taxes. Um, and they support it emotionally. I think that an awful lot of people are, uh, including many teachers are looking for more fulfilling, um, settings in which they can actually work out their sense of vocation and meaning and when you when you provide bridges for teachers uh to to do that in schools what you find you know not surprisingly is a decline in absenteeism a decline in uh people leaving the profession uh, an increase in in uh, a sense of community and of uh of mutual care increase in sort of perceived safety of schools so i think you know the context of schooling is is an extremely important thing for teachers to be aware of. I I think a lot of the harem scarum stuff that goes on about the about the quality of teaching is probably misaligned. Mm. Um, where the people are sort of nervous <laughs> about things, um, and in a consumer society, the most important uh, possession, quote unquote, that they have is their children. And the consequences, uh, so most of the debates are really about security of the future. They're not really about the quality of teaching. Professor John Hattie, his research into um, visible learning, uh, in, in, in particular around effect size, has collective teacher efficacy at the top. Yep. And it's clear based on his research that uh, when teachers collaborate and they're rowing in the same direction, there's a greater chance that it's going to yield uh, a higher effect size of growth and achievement in the young people in their care. Can you talk a little bit about how your teacher training program supports this, this kind of very highly collaborative approach that no teacher is working in an island kind of philosophy? It's no longer just the autonomy of their classroom that they are working uh, in concert with each other and the way in which they do that is congruent with the values of not only their learning community, but of course that of the families and, and the young people in their care. Yeah, we, um, uh, <laughs> my, my position is, is more or less as a form of um, social solutions designer. I, I suppose that's one way that you can put what it is that tertiary education should be doing. Um, and so when we went to schools and looked at um, what principals were saying about um, about the type of people who are coming to them from tertiary agencies uh, and, and out of uh, teacher training 
and their, their readiness for the classroom, uh, their sense of fit with the ethos of the organization into which they were coming. Uh, lots of principals said pretty much the same thing that essentially there's no fit between, you know, what's coming out of, out of tertiary bodies and what we need in the classroom or very low fit. I mean, they could teach curriculum, but essentially the contractual nature of, of uh, teacher education and the mass nature of teacher education in, uh, in Australia has tended to, to, in a sense, undermine local agency. So what we had to do was create a system, uh, we felt, uh, in uh, what, we, what we call a learning ecology uh, in, in the locality in which teachers could be from day one engaged in classrooms and they could uh, be put under uh, experienced mentors um, who, who understood the ethos of the school in which they were and could, in a sense, induct them in, in that in all the ways, in the sort of embodied way which, which traditional learning uh, used to take place within teaching before um, you know, the, the uh, reforms of the 1950s and 60s. And essentially to return teaching towards a craft setting whereby you had access to the professional content input um, uh, and the tertiary input, but the most important thing is the formation, what we call communities of knowledge, communities of practice, communities of formation. So you had a community of knowledge, which is the tertiary agency. You've got a community of practice, which is the school. And then you've got a community of formation, which is which who are the colleagues of uh, of teachers going forward. And there's the there's the stuff you can teach, which is the content. And then there's the there's the stuff you just have to catch, and, and that's the stuff which you get from uh, experienced uh, mentors and supervisors. So we established um, our first pilot at um, a school. Am I allowed to mention name schools? <laughs> yeah, of course, um, of course. Podcast, okay. I'm not sure if we were the ABC or not, um, but uh, we established our first pilot um, scheme at uh, the St Philip's Christian College in the Hunter Valley. Uh, it, it takes uh, what's called a minimum viable number of students um, of 10 every year. So it took 10 teacher cadets in the first year, and that's now scaled. It's in its third intake, about to take its fourth intake. So there, from January next year, there'll be 40 uh, teacher cadets across its network. Uh, and they uh, each have a teacher mentor uh, with whom they assist as teaching assistants in, in the classroom. Uh, so they, they're employed um, uh, part of the week. And essentially it means that between three and four days of the week are actually spent in the classroom uh, and with time out for group work, reflection uh, and uh, tutorial facilitation. And then on the final day and then during the holidays, uh, students are um, taught by intensive in the content elements uh, which, are, which are required for um, teacher registration. So what we end up with is, is a very heavily embedded uh, high touch um, arrangement where students are selected uh, from uh, an ethos background which will often fit um, the school in the first place so teach, you know, students self-select because they opt to join the program much more like uh, say a large um, company might run a cadetship program mm -hmm. uh, so that they can be inducted into the process and the outcome of that was that we saw our um, ATAR equivalent entry point jump from about 70 to nearly 90 uh, in the, in the, um, uh, amongst the students who were being attracted. We ended up with almost zero burnout um, because, uh, I mean, the average burnout across the first seven to eight years uh, after initial uh, enrollment for, student, for teacher education students is about 70%. 
um, whereas we've got that down to well maybe 10% but probably less uh, because you know you put you, you take care of those three important things that is you know I want to do something that's meaningful with yeah. people I want to be part of a community and I want to be a lifelong learner and it, and if you cater for that then strangely enough what you get is in an embedded setting is you get better fit you get much more motivated staff you get less burnout and wastage and much more alignment with the local ethos of the school mark i'm i'm i'm, I'm really interested um in some very specific learnings by the team uh your team at uh, alpha cruces college in terms of what you're learning about the micro skills of apprenticeship in teacher education. Um, as you know, at the, a lot of the circle research into in education for character and competency in the 21st century talks to the primacy of um, school student teacher relationships that are built as character apprenticeship. There's formation, there's um, power exchange going on, there's equipping, there's enabling, there's a very specific sequence, those sorts of things. In the adult to adult environment, what are you seeing? What are you learning about apprenticeship? Uh, that it's reciprocal, um, as all human relationships are. Um, relationships are not theoretical. They're always embodied, always embedded in social situations. And so our supervisor teachers come to us and say, well, I'm learning as much here as the student is. Uh, about how I teach because in a sense I've got a mirror uh, in the classroom of someone who is in a sense learning from me and I see that learning take place and I see what happens with the kids when I have another set of hands in the classroom uh, and so the, the reciprocity of it is enormous um, but it isn't just about the candidate it's actually also about the supervising teacher and the community of learning in the classroom which is much better equipped so we had, we sent a student on uh, on prac because they they need to get outside of their 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 host school uh, for for prac in order to provide variety of learning. Uh, we sent a a teacher down to um, a teacher candidate down to uh, to another school with which you are very familiar, um, Phil, and um, <laughs> and uh, the report from that school was that the teacher candidates were much more like having another teacher in the classroom as opposed to being a prac student who in a sense was an administrative burden. So what we're finding is um, that reciprocity, um, social capital are extremely important uh, when you train teachers and that the whole learning environment um, is, is uh, it forms part of this learning ecology that we're talking about. It can't be isolated up, you know, chopped up into bits and then provided during PD days. I mean, that's pretty ineffective. Uh, but it can be embedded in a much larger ecology and then become effective when it begins to capitalise on all the other assets which are in the system. What I, I'm really enjoying uh, listening to you about, Mark, is that it's very clear that your your focus is about a values proposition here with, with uh, how we best support teachers in developing their vocation and their expertise, but more importantly, all those kind of human skills that you want to draw on from their lived experiences to be able to then translate that into a classroom to empower the young people in their care. Uh, so I think that's a very noble uh, approach to teacher training. Recently, the, the Grattan Institute published a paper called Top Teachers, Sharing Expertise in, to Improve Teaching. And they're advocating for a, for a, a tiered system of teachers, so to speak. They're advocating for your, you know, your, your entry level teacher, 
uh, and then all, you know, all the various roles that were within schools. But they're recommending to, to state governments and, and non-government schools that they should consider the introduction of two new roles. One is a, an instructional specialist who has a, a particular expertise uh, and capacity around the, uh, the instruction of teaching within their subject area. Uh, and they're suggesting that, of course, this specialist uh, has not only strong subject skills, but strong coaching skills. So there's a mentorship component to, to that. And they're suggesting that that person should be paid uh, 140000 per annum. They're also recommending that we introduce master teachers into the equation. Uh, and, you know, who, who, are, who are allegedly deep experts now in, in their uh, subject area uh, and, and are responsible for developing the next generation of instructional specialists within schools. And they would, to be, to be paid, that's the suggestion, uh, in excess of $180,000 per annum. So there's this tiered system happening uh, that they're proposing uh, with, with this going on. Nowhere, in my, my view, in the proposal here, have they focused simply on the craft of teaching. They're simply focusing on content experts that's my reading of it, but I could be wrong. I'm interested in your take on what they're proposing. Um, yeah, well, I haven't read the report, but um, uh, there's been a lot of attempts to try and throw more money at schooling, uh, often without a lot, a lot of effect. Uh, you, I mean, you can raise the, the salaries of teachers, but primarily teachers don't become teachers because of the salary. So fundamentally what you'll find is there's a cutoff point in, in the utility of increasing wages uh, you just won't get more effect yeah and so i think that has yet to be tried um and uh, golly if they're going to pay 180 i might actually volunteer <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> um it might be a few people who put their hands up for that i, I think with a certain sort of motivators the issue however is when you contractualize things you've got to look at how social systems work and what the reinforcers are um, if people are not primarily motivated, the best teachers are not primarily motivated by, by the financial returns, but they're much more uh, motivated by things like um, the ability to continue in learning and to continue to, in a more profound way, um, engage in meaningful um, uh, activities, then it would be, would be probably better to think about um, the, the tiers in terms of, and I think the tiers aren't a bad idea, it's sort of like a system that we established at the Scots College um, some years ago. Um, the biggest issue for teachers is that they just get bored. I mean, schools are very flat organisations. Um, it's very difficult to move from level to level unless you actually move out of the school. So if you're talking about holding on to um, expertise inside a school, then you've got to think of ways of providing um, alternative activities that they can be involved in. And fundamentally, the thing that puts the cap on a school is that everything finishes at year 12. Everything mm. moves lockstep against the curriculum. Now, because everything finishes at year 12, which is something that schools are now exploring as um, a way of getting, you know, trying to break through that cap, um, you, you, you effectively don't have ways of, of moving the roles of a teacher outside the straight classroom activities because the curriculum and the timetable make the majority roles of teachers pretty fixed actually. So unless you want to go off and become a deputy somewhere or head of department in another school, um, effectively all you're doing is training people to leave your school, which is not, which is in some cases is a good thing, uh, but in other cases it may not be a terribly good thing. So I think 
I think you'd have to look very carefully at the motivators. Um, our experience in the hub model is that when you provide meaningful um, community and engagement and, and that teachers are invited in the process of formation of other professionals, they, they find that incredibly re rewarding. Mm. Um, and so the, the biggest promoters, uh, because you know uh, any any system change in a school is has got to in a sense deal with culture change and um and the biggest promoters of of the new system have been the supervising teachers who find their own practice quite transformed by having an 18 year old who in whom they recognize themselves in a sense being in the classroom with them uh and learning things and um and the excitement of that is 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 tremendous. It provides an, a, a greater variety of roles for teachers, and of course, the learning ecology inside our system at the schools in which we're implementing it also includes master's degrees, PhD programs, research programs, and the ability over time, um, when teachers become more qualified, to actually teach back into the teaching program. Right. Uh, so you've got this variegation of roles across the ecology of a large school network, which I think can probably perform all the roles at a, probably at less than $180,000 a year. Um, but good for you if you can get it. Mark, <laughs> I think uh, there's a certain pragmatism there, um, which, is, uh, which is very grounded. Um, I'm interested in the way in which you place research and the competencies of being a researcher into the role of the teacher. I'm also interested in the way schools can think about how to support teachers to do both the daily research that thinkers like Hattie would suggest we should be doing. You know, we're all evaluators of our own work and also the more long-term research projects how do how do how do how do we fit research into a model invented somewhere in the 19th century that didn't allow people time to do research and was based on and was based on a fixed body of knowledge that's right fixed body of knowledge and also out of often uh, hierarchical university systems in which uh, the the top degree was a bachelor's degree rather than a master's or a, or a phd PhDs were quite rare in Australia um, up until the beginning of the 20th century. What they used to call you know, German degrees for American students. Um, so uh, <laughs> a fair deal of Cambridge and Oxford sniffiness about the education system. Um, but the, uh, I think the issue, Phil, is, is you've got to build it into the, the reward systems of the, um, of the school itself. Um, research of the type which is done by university. I mean, getting back to the structure of things, I mentioned before uh, about a pedagogy based upon communities of knowledge, communities of uh, practice and communities of formation. Um, the school needs to develop bridges so that there is a lively connection uh, between the activities of teachers and students in the school and communities of knowledge where knowledge is produced. They can't be put into a position of simply being consumers of knowledge and waiting for the next textbook to come out. Um, because essentially by the time it comes out, the knowledge is out of date anyway. Um, and they, in the same way, students and teachers need to be put into a lively connection with communities of practice, because practice is what drives the formation of knowledge. Now, business knows this. Uh, business is in close connection 
through research processes uh, into in, in terms of product innovation, etc. And but it's just not done in schools because we tend to think that the body of knowledge is fixed and it's not school based or dynamic. And so um, I think that, uh, you know, long term career planning for teachers is has got to be on the table. I think um, embedding um, and rewarding and providing time off uh, in schools for teachers who are going to be um, moving towards higher degrees. Um, a lot of the money that, ha that, that is spent in schools on things like strategic formation, et cetera, could in fact be engaged in a learning process in which higher degrees are involved. And that's precisely what we're doing at, at St. Phillips and a number of other schools. Uh, where you know you've got staff doing PhDs uh, on specific subjects which are particularly related to the strategic outcomes of the school and so that they're in a sense generating the policy environment in which the school develops over time so all of that can be done but you've got to look at the whole system you can't in a sense lob a couple of of, um, of courses into a into the into the deputy principal's bag and say stick those in the timetable because uh, if you do that, the, the whole system will in fact eventually squeeze them out when you get a change of um, staff at the top. So there's something about leadership competencies here and, and new leadership competencies here, Mark. When, when I hear you saying that fundamentally we don't need a whole lot more money in the system, the second part of the message I'm hearing from you is we need to learn to use our resources differently. We need to think differently about the model of how we engage people in their time and what their priorities are and how we resource them and how we support them within the model or within within the constraints that we've got because the reality is there's never there's no more time and there's no more money that's right you know so if you so we have to learn how to use our time and we need to learn how to spend our money differently time and again mark we are seeing in in our conversations with game changers that it's not the people within the model who are broken, it's the model that's broken. And somehow we need to teach people that if the model's broken, then you can either stick with it or you can work from within to build another one along the way. How do we teach leaders in schools to build new models? Well, partially they'll have to give it a choice. I mean, uh, most educational change on a large scale occurs because of massive public crises. Uh, such, such, such as one we're living through right now. I mean, there's, a, there, there's an immediate thing that's happening right now, which is... Suddenly online learning looks like a good idea. Absolutely. And, 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 and schools have been vacillating around this for years now, and suddenly they need to do it. And it's happening quickly. And what's happening is pretty good, you know. People are getting together. You know, Adriano talked about that earlier, that there's quite, you know, there's, there are impressive communities of inquiry and practice that are building up around this quick, quickly. So if, if, so, but, but it's not just about response to yeah. circumstances that are imposed. Yeah, I mean, leaders need uh, an impulse. There's push and pull in every historic situation. Um, you know, leaders need an impulse. That is, they need something to, in a sense, push them. But they, in a sense, they also need a sort of a, a set of, a, of good and well-placed plans for moving forward. Um, I mean, the likelihood for any leader in education at the moment is that the standard matriculation pathways, which have ruled Australia for the last 40 or 50 years, will blow up sometime in the next 10 years because they don't fit skill formation. Uh, most schools are now trying to look in a patchwork way at implementing 
post-secondary programs back into years 10, 11, 12, which will change the status of the year 12 cap. Um, it will um, bring schools much closer to, um, uh, to these, the community of knowledge um, uh, formation. So, and, and also most schools are looking at um, a massive disconnect in their classrooms uh, a bit with disinterested students who can no longer simply be punished into, into um, compliance. And so the outcome of that will be um, that schools uh, are going to need to put a much closer association between what they, how they teach, not, not so much what they teach, but how they teach and how they engage students in the actual um, workplace um, in, into which students are looking to go. So um, engagement is massive. Um, the skill sets are going to be um, uh, significantly challenged within schools because the standard model for a teacher will need to change in order to be able to become a facilitator for those alternative pathways. So um, I think the learning ecology of, of most schools will um, either by choice or by, um, by need to respond um, will in fact change over the next uh, 10 or 15 years. I mean, simple things like, can you complete your HSC uh, um, uh, online and using a keyboard, for example? Well, the old argu argument's going to go out the window pretty quickly. Um, and it's just simply going to have to be facilitated because you know, the learning schools related to the old form uh, uh, have been bypassed by events. So I think, you know, teachers are up for it. If you provide them with a learning ecology where the rewards for change are in the system, uh, and you provide them with time and a meaningful um, way forward, they almost inevitably respond positively uh, and are, are in fact often looking for it themselves. I mean, the big question for policymakers is to think about, you know, uh, who's not in our schools? You know, where, where are those 70% of teachers <laughs> who started teacher education uh, in year one uh, at the University of Upper Kambakta West? Um, where are they now? Well, a lot of them are out in IT industries, they're out in, in business, they're out in, in retail, they're out in all sorts of places. Simply, but that doesn't mean that, mean that they didn't want to be teachers. It just meant that the system couldn't engage the sort of yeah. desires and skills that they thought that they needed to be teaching. One of the things I noticed, uh, having just come out of a school, was that the kind of auxiliary staff or, or the... Um, the, the professional staff within schools, which continues to grow because of the, of the needs of, of schools, is that when I sat on interview panels, and, and this is a generalization, but I'd say it was pretty consistent for the vast majority of people that I've been interviewing now for the last 10 years for those type of roles, is that they were actually wanting to work in a school environment because they too were looking for uh, a vocation that gave them meaning and purpose that they were mainly coming from a corporate world where the bottom line was the bottom line of you know stakeholders and and um, um, shareholder dividends and so on. But of course, in a school, the bottom line is not that. Yes, schools have to be solvent, but that's not what their, their pure focus, of course, is. And that's about helping young people discover their possibility. So it's really interesting that teachers have been moving out of the profession, probably for a whole lot of reasons. But then there are others who are wanting to move into it, not necessarily in the coalface of the classroom, because they're seeking some form of meaning uh, in, in their particular kind of working professional life. Yeah, and our, we've, we've got 
a number of researchers looking at uh, what's going to happen to the workforce, for example, when the millennials are a significant proportion of it. And, uh, and I think that that particular trend is only going to increase. Um, in the <laughs> in the hub, we sometimes get these applications. Uh, in the hub, which we've just commenced at uh, St Andrews Cathedral School and the related uh, Anglican schools, and also the Scots College in Sydney at the moment, uh, we had an applicant uh, who was the uh, legal counsel for a large corporate firm, and clearly not on one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year. Yes. Um, who was prepared to give all that up and come back and be a primary school teacher simply because he wanted to do something meaningful, and I think you find that. Um, uh, you know, time and again, there's tremendous possibility in that sort of attractiveness as long as we can retain it in in the sorts of school cultures that we build. So the sort of stuff that Phil does, for example, in in school culture uh, building, uh, sort of things you've been talking about on this on this podcast, and the sort of things that we're doing in terms of um, of strategically uh, helping schools realise um, coherent and sustainable learning ecologies. Um, that I think is going to make is probably going to do a lot more than than simply throwing money at um, the outcomes because I think you know schools will become very attractive places to work. Yeah, I'm now going to shift the the, the conversation to probably the, the crux of why Game Changers as a podcast series has existed, and that is that we are we are speaking with people who are who are making significant change within their various sector in relation to the future of schooling and education. So my question to you is this, what do you believe is the purpose of schooling in today's world? And what do you think are the best indicators required to measure a school success now? Mm -hmm. Those are big questions. Um, you remember I'm a social historian by training. <laughs> um, my, my measures may not be uh, the standard ones applied by the OECD. Um, well, I, I think schools are, um, uh, locations of formation as a whole. I think they can also be locations for reflective knowledge production and for, uh, for engaging professional practice. I mean, for example, one of the things we're implementing at the moment is uh, an entrepreneurship network uh, at the largest uh, Christian school in Cessnock. Um, the reason why, uh, the, uh, and it's really interesting because <laughs> it, it's become in a sense the school of choice uh, in, in, in that locality because of its transformative effect upon everything that happens in that locality, yeah. not because of necessarily what the school does. So I think schools are incredibly important social institutions for the leverage that they provide on bringing about adaptation to social change and helping families engage with their communities. I mean, if you think of all the things that happen around a school and the, and the, the wonderful way that um, new school architecture is trending, um, to take that into account, I mean, they are very powerful engines of, um, of social maturity uh, and cohesion. Um, so I think that's uh, embedding our children in that is a tremendous act of trust. But at the same time, I think, generally speaking, teachers get it pretty right. Uh, it, it, it really does um, uh, pay back the interest which parents and government and other parts of the, of the polity uh, are, are putting into them and is worth every penny and probably more. So I think schools um, have a tremendous role to perform uh, just in cohering communities. In terms of metrics, um, I would, uh, I mean, <laughs> backward looking metrics uh, have inevitable problems because we, 
we try to t treat everything as if it fits on a normal curve yeah uh, and impose high stakes metrics on things which are really benchmarked against what happened you know one two five ten fifteen years ago uh, in the aggregated data that's a really that's really problematic when you're looking at forward-looking formation of humans um, and uh, what we're trying to I mean if you look at schools as probably our most influential um, form of social engineering um, you know if, if that's your best tool that's a really bad set of data you're, you're plugging into your best tool. So what I'm really hearing is that as we move into this kind of new paradigm and a new kind of learning ecosystem, the reality is that the metrics that we've been using in the past, the tools that we've been using in the past, they're no longer relevant. And um, we've got to start measuring things that we value, not so much standardised tests. So, you know, character formation, for example, I think yeah. is massive. Um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you can do things in terms of, uh, and we are doing things in our research programs at, at, at Alpha Crucis, in terms of social capital formation in, in the locality. Um, you know, we've demonstrated and, and applied the broader international learning, which demonstrates, for example, in a society which is largely built upon sort of suburban expansion, that placing a particular type of school in a particular location, in a particular walking distance from home, actually shifts the, the entire economic model um, and livability of a particular location. So there's lots of things which I think, lots of ways of, of, um, of measuring the influence of a school. And then, then if you look at the individual impact upon character formation, upon direction by, uh, of students in terms of their life opportunities, in terms of their engagement at school, in terms of the skills they bring to, uh, to the, variegated work outcomes that they're, they're put into. And I think you've got a, you know, there's a whole range of, of options in there. Social capital, I mean, the social capital theory stuff that we're working on um, it is already demonstrating very powerful outcomes in predicting um, how we can do better do education for social transformation. My final question to you, Mark, is that as schools move towards uh, greater attention around the formation of character attributes and giving that a real emphasis. They're also moving towards leveraging up from foundational literacies of literacy and numeracy and, and including new ones in that kind of paradigm of enterprise thinking and uh, financial literacy as well as digital literacy. Uh, and they're also creating a real emphasis on those kind of thinking modes that you've spoken about, that the how to learn as opposed to what to learn. They're the kind of the capabilities that keep navigating through. As this is, is becoming perhaps the new normal, you know, within within uh, schools, and I, and I hope it continues to become the kind of mainstream kind of philosophy of, of most educational settings. What's then the role of young people and students in schools in teacher training? Um, how young? <laughs> well, I, I'm going to leave that open because, you know, I, I'm, I find that young people are quite remarkable and uh, they are, are forever curious and they also have a pretty good BS meter, you know, and uh, if we're going to be really serious about inviting young people to the table about co-producing those learning communities, because that's where we're going and giving over more autonomy and control and trusting in that. Will there be some missteps? Absolutely, there are missteps with adults. Why wouldn't there be with young people? It's part of their growing. But, but my question is, where is the role of students 
uh, in the formation of uh, our prospective teachers. Well, I mean, I talked earlier about the reflexivity of it, the reciprocity of, of the classroom setting. I think all the research demonstrates, you know, I think you've implied it, but yeah. let me say it specifically that the, the, the greatest impact you can have on a classroom is in, it lives within the teacher-student relationship. And so um, students are part of that relationship. And I think they feed back to teachers um, uh, a tremendous ability to um, engage in, in new opportunities. So because that they themselves have now sort of an openness to the world through uh, media and technology, et cetera. Uh, and they bring they bring those questions into the classroom. Well, you, they can't express those unless the classroom is restructured, yes. unless, in a sense, the goals and and uh, teaching methods themselves are restructured, and in a sense, the position of the teacher. I mean, um, to some degree, um, for those of us who've run departments and faculties in schools, um, you know, you, you're very aware that that sometimes the closed door of a teacher. I, I'm just going to teach my class is not about the students or about the curriculum or about the outcomes for the students. It's largely about defending themselves against the culture of the school. Mm. And so I think, you know, uh, we're seeing really good um, examples of cross school um, uh, culture, culture change approaches of uh, um, curriculum integration, continuous training for teachers. I mean, the logic of that is, is simply what we've been talking about um, uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, learning ecologies. Um, I mean, the learning ecology has to go down uh, right through um, the curriculum, right down from K upwards, that, that students need to be able to expect that there's going to be an individualised approach to uh, engaging them, educating them, and, uh, and directing them and providing opportunities for them in the areas which they find engaging and fulfilling. And I think... Mark, I just have a question there around individualisation. Um, by which I don't mean, you know, uh, locking students in, in, uh, in. Yeah, of, of course. And we're talking about per, we're talking about personalisation of learning, and, and 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 it more than anything else is the theme that's coming out of um, all of our conversations with game changers such as yourself. You know, Adriana likes to talk about uh, the age of the human, and and the response of schools is to become more personal in, in that approach. Why do you think so many? oppose personalization it's hard uh, in the current economic model i think that schools uh, are locked into markets they, their funding runs in a certain way the timetable runs in a certain way you know uh, you know the the teaching profession itself is quite unionized so i mean there are all sorts of inflexibilities which um which impose themselves upon the ability to change and a lot and a lot of it's just the expectation in people's heads as to what what a classroom is sometimes parents can drive exactly the same set of expectations so uh, but it comes down also i think um to the leading providing the sort of flexible curriculum and opportunity uh, environment in which parents can in a sense be demonstrated and teachers can also learn that that um, variegation of opportunities for students isn't against their best interests it's not going to challenge their content or their jobs or these sorts of things. Um, I, th I think one of the things we're doing, for example, at the moment is uh, implementing VET programs down to year nine um, by looking at existing curriculum, mapping it against VET options, 
and providing RPL you know, sort of uh, recognition of prior learning pathways for students so that they can actually see the endpoint rather than in a sense hoping that you know at the end this mystical process which happens at the end of year 12 um, might somehow heave over the horizon for them so engagement is really important there's lots more opportunity there than most schools um, uh, engage with some of that's to do with the way we train our leaders our teachers I think they they are educated into conformity um, um, so I think blowing that up uh, will make schools not only more functional and and efficacious places it'll also make them a lot more fun to be in um, and much more attractive places uh, for, for uh, the teachers of the future. Mark, that's an awesome place for us, uh, uh, us to reach, talking about both blowing things up and enjoying yourself at the same time. <laughs> it almost sounds like the ideal chemistry lesson that we wish we'd, we'd, we'd already had, uh, uh, always always had. I, I really admire the way in which you are, you are an artisan in education. You're constantly tinkering and constantly fiddling and innovating and, and modelling um, to everybody what it means to be a game changer, what it means to be uh, a thinker. Um, it's been a real privilege to talk with you and to learn from you today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks very much for having me. Bye. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school, produced by Samuel Wiseman for Mordor Productions. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe.